Moses witnesses the creation, Moses 2. This I did by the word of my power, Moses 2, 5. Book of Moses, essay number 48. By the Book of Mormon Central team with Matthew L. Bowen and Jeffrey M. Bradshaw. Distinction and separation are the central themes of the creation account. And I, God, said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, Moses 2.14. In Michelangelo's masterful depiction, God dramatically extends his arms in opposite directions, majestically assigning the golden ball of the sun to rule the day and the gray moon to rule the night. To achieve a special otherworldly effect, the moon was painted without paint, In other words, it is the actual color of the bare plaster surface beneath the fresco itself. Although from a Latter-day Saint perspective, it is hard to imagine a more traditional depiction of creation, Michelangelo's portrait is thoroughly unacceptable to rabbinic Judaism. For one thing, Ellis observes, the anthropomorphic portrayal violates both the second commandment and also the idea that God is unknowable, unimaginable, and visually unportrayable. Additionally, God is shown as affecting creation through action rather than by the sole means of potent speech acts that enact the creative power of language. Thus, Ellis explains, Michelangelo's God is both inexplicably busy and unjewishly mute. For the Jew, writes Susan Handelman, God's presence is inscribed or traced within a text, not a body. Divinity is located in language, not person. End of quote. Tempering this distinction between Latter-day Saints and Jewish thought, however, is the theme of God's Word, a thread that runs through every chapter in the Book of Moses. Continuing the discussion of the topic from a previous article, this essay will explore the role of the Divine Word in creation. There are many worlds that have passed away by the word of my power. Moses 1.35 The Lord's description of the cosmic scale and endless continuum on which creation by the divine word transpires constitutes one of the most stunning aspects of the visions of Moses. As noted previously, Hebrews 1.2 and 11.3 mention worlds in plural, but the phrases worlds without number, many worlds, and later millions of earths like this belong to the book of Moses. This concept, as Draper Brown and Rhodes note, was not part of traditional Christian teaching and a doctrine unknown in the days of Joseph Smith. These expressions and the statements which they occur correspond to the chronological infinitude expressed by Isaiah as worlds without end or worlds um, or to all eternity. This imagery resonates with the cosmic picture being given us by contemporary astronomy and the deep space telescopes more than anything else we find in ancient scripture. The Lord mentions many worlds that are innumerable unto man, but numbered unto me. Worlds cycling through a course of creation and uncreation. Quote, But only an account of this earth and the inhabitants thereof give I unto you. For behold, there are many worlds that have passed away by the word of my power. And there are many that now stand and are innumerable unto man, but all things are numbered unto me, for they are mine, and I know them. The heavens, they are many, and they cannot be numbered unto man, but they are numbered unto me, for they are mine. And as one earth shall pass away, and the heavens thereof, even so shall another come, and there is no end to my works, neither to my words. End of quote. This language also resonates with Jesus' words to his disciples as recorded in Matthew 24. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Or as clarified in the Joseph Smith translation, or JST, quote, 
Although the days will come that heaven and earth shall pass away, yet my word shall not pass away, but all shall be fulfilled. End of quote. That last phrase, but all shall be fulfilled, added to the JST Matthew text, represents one of the most important thematic aspects of the divine word in the book of Moses. A revelation given to the prophet Joseph Smith beginning September 26, 1830, quotes or paraphrases the text of Moses 1 revealed just months earlier. Quote, but remember that all my judgments are not given unto men, and as the words have gone forth out of my mouth, even so they shall be fulfilled, that the first shall be last, and that the last shall be first, in what the, all things whatsoever I have created by the word of my power, which is the power of my spirit. Jesus' endless words in pre-mortality, mortality and post-mortality are the ongoing creative process in the cosmos. He is the creative force. Thus the revelation to Moses of an endless procession of earths and the heaven with the heavens thereof forestalls the notion that the heavens and the earth being finished in the forthcoming creation account somehow amounts to an end to divine creative activity, as Genesis 3.1 and the notion of Sabbath from the Hebrew word Shabbat, cease, come to an end of an activity, might seem to imply. As Jesus said to the Jerusalem religious elite who challenged his Sabbath day activities, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. The Book of Moses' view of creative word parallels its view of the written words of God with its implicit notion of canon. Quote, there is no end to my works, neither to my words. End of quote. There is no end to creation. There is no end to scripture or revelation, the revealed word. The universe is an open canon. This I did by the word of my power, and it was done as I spake. Moses 2.5 The book of Moses transitions from the initial visions of Moses to Joseph Smith's inspired revision of Genesis 1 creation account, which constitutes a continuation of the preceding vision, with the Lord commanding Moses to write his words and re-emphasizing the executive role of the only begotten in a never-ending creation process. Quote, and it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Behold, I reveal unto you concerning this heaven and this earth. Write the words or things which I speak. I am the beginning and the end, the Almighty God. By mine only begotten I created these things. Yea, in the beginning I created the heaven and the earth upon which thou standest. End of quote. The Lord's ongoing words to Moses represent a continuation of his endless words and a never-ending creation, his works. This establishes the framework for the creation account in which the spoken word and the creative process remain eminently intertwined. Kathleen Flake has observed that, quote, like the Book of Mormon's Israelite Exodus to America, the JST's creation narrative has always informed the Latter-day Saint ethos, end of quote. The Lord's words in Moses 2.1 breathe new life into the abstract opening statement of the Hebrew Bible, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, Genesis 1.1. The Lord himself appropriates the beginning, Hebrew, Reshit, as a name or title for himself. Here, too, he is the subject of the verb create, Hebrew, bara, the verb of which God is always the subject or implied agent in the Bible. But he takes personal ownership of his creative acts through the first-person verb, verb form. This invites comparison to the creation scenes in Isaiah 40-66 and the use of the first person in Isaiah 43-7, 45-8, 12, 54-16, compare especially Isaiah 45-8 and 12. 
Joseph Smith's Genesis revision restores a backdrop that accommodates other creation texts in the Hebrew Bible, like Psalms 148, 5 and 8. Quote, For he commanded, and they were created, fire and hail, snow and vapor, stormy wind fulfilling his word. This closely correlated works and words of Moses 1, 4 and 5 and 48. Works and world, works and words brought to, to pass through the word of my power, Moses 1, 32, 35, and 2, 5, supplies additional revelatory context for the creation by the divinely spoken Yehi, let there be, Moses 2, 3, 6, 9, and 14, widely familiar from the Genesis account. The tight pairing of the Jusiv Yehi, let there be, and Vahi, and there was, paints a dramatic verbal picture of the genetic relationship between words and work. The Septuagint version of the Bible rendered the Hebrew Yehi with the verb Geneteto, hence the name of the book Genesis. The Vulgate translation rendered Geneteto with the third person Fiat, where whence the theological notion expressed as creation by Fiat. Recognition of this verb form helps us to appreciate the nature of the Lord's Prayer as a kind of creation text. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. End of quote. Moreover, such recognition frames Jesus, reframes Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane as a creation-type text. Thy will be done. Matthew certainly intended his audience to see the Lord's Prayer and Jesus' prayer to the Father in Gethsemane as inextricably, inextricably linked by the shared phrase geneteto to telemasu. In submitting his word completely to the Father, Jesus effected and completed the atoning of the physical and spiritual creation, without which neither could answer the end or fill the measure of their creation. Notably, the two JST passages further help us envisage the Lord's Prayer and Jesus' Prayer in Gethsemane as creation-type texts. First, from the cross, Jesus, a JST Matthew 27.54 records, quote, A loud voice saying, Father, it is finished. Thy will is done, and yielded up the ghost. John 19.30 implies, employs the same verbal root, teleo, as the Septuagint creation account, and the heavens and the earth and all their order, or cosmos, were finished, and God created on the fit and God finished on the seventh day. Jesus reports to the Father as he finishes a new creation before entering into rest on the Sabbath. The second passage returns the creation language of Jesus' prayers to the premortal existence in the council in heaven. In the beginning, where Jesus, the Father's my beloved and chosen from the beginning, humbled himself before the Father. Father, thy will be done, and the glory be thine forever. The close relationship between Jesus Christ's role as creator and redeemer, between creation and redemption, suddenly comes into stark focus. The thematic use of the creation by word, verb, yehi, in Genesis 1, inevitably ties the creative process to the divine name, or tetragrammaton, Yahweh, often rendered Jehovah, or more recently Yahweh. And its meaning, Frank Moore Cross, explains the form of the verb, of the name Yahweh as, quote, a causative imperfect to the Canaanite proto-Hebrew verb uh, to be, with the basic meaning he creates, or he who causes to happen. David Noel Friedman and Michael P. O'Connor insist that in Hebrew, Yahweh must be a causative, since the dissimulation 
uh, did not apply to Amorite, West Semitic, while it was obligatory in Hebrew. The name Yahweh must therefore be in the Hebrew, Hiphal form. Although the causative is un- otherwise unknown in Northwest Semitic, with the exception of Syriac, which is of little re- relevance here, it seems to be attested in the name of the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the precise origin of the name Yahweh and its possible relationship to the Mesopotamian de- deity Ea, or Enki, remains a matter of discussion and exploration. Whatever the case, the onomastic word wordplay on Yahweh in terms of the verb form Eya, and God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am, or Eya, has sent me unto you, confirms that the ancient Israelites thought of the name Yahweh in terms of the verb uh, to be, the origin of the name Yahweh or Yah. This constitutes the conceptual background against which the foregoing justice creation fiats, let there be, should be understood, a name expressing the idea of creating or bringing to pass through the speaking of the very word of which the name itself is a manifestation. In this vein, the text of Moses 2 reiterates the executive role of the Son in his accomplishing the divine will by means of the phrase, This I did by the word of my power. And I, God, called the light day, and the darkness called I night. And this I did by the word of my power, and it was done as I spake. And the evening and the morning were the first day. The phrase, and it was done as I spake, here preserves and replicates the tight cause-effect relationship between word and work, evident in the tight pairing of, I, God, said, let there be, and there was. Jeffrey M. Bradshaw suggests that the added phrase, this I did by my, the word of my power, functions as a more or less synonymous power parallel to the expression that it was done as I spake. The reiterated variants of the stereotype Genesis 1 phrase, and so it was in Moses 2, and it was done, and it was even so as I spake, and it was so, further emphasized the power of the divine word to bring to pass each divine work. And the stars were also made according to my word. Moses 2.16. In addition to the worlds without number, or many worlds which God claims as his creations in Moses 1.33 and 35, he avers his creation of the great luminaries in the heavens upon which these worlds necessarily depend. He accordingly makes the following geocentric statement regarding the creation of the luminaries. And I, God, made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. And the greater light was the sun, and the lesser light was the moon, and the stars also were made, even according to my word. End of quote. Unlike the Genesis account, where the names of the great lights have been suppressed, possibly due to the connection of Shemesh, sun, and Yarea, moon, with the divinized sun, Shamash, and the divinized moon, Akkadian, Sheen, were widely worshipped. Suppression of the names sun and moon in the biblical text is rendered superfluous in the Book of Moses text with the declaration that the sun, moon, and stars all came into being, even according to my word. God and his divine word are the only deities that the text has in view. The divine passive, were made according to my word, further allows for a very lengthy creative process. We see something similar in the Lord's subsequent description of the spiritual creation. See Moses Conclusion. Even some of the most doubting of scientists have stated their willingness to keep their mind open to the possibility of a God, so long as it is a God worthy of the grandeur of the universe. 
For example, the well-known skeptic Richard Dawkins stated, quote, If there is a God, it's going to be a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more incomprehensible than anything that any theologian of any religion has ever proposed, end of quote. Similarly, Elder Neil A. Maxwell approvingly quoted the unbelieving scientist Carl Sagan, noting that he, quote, perceptively observed that, quote, in some respects, science has far surpassed religion in delivering awe. How is it that hardly any major religion has looked at science included and concluded, this is better than we thought. The universe is much bigger than our prophet said, grander, more subtle, more elegant. God must be even greater than we dreamed. Instead, they say, no, 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 my God is a little God, and I want him to stay that way. End of quote from Carl Sagan and Elder Maxwell. Joseph Smith's God was not a little God. His God was a God who required our minds to stretch as high as the utmost heavens and search into and contemplate the darkest abyss and the broad expanse of eternity. That is more of a stretch than the best of us now can even imagine. <laughs>